You are listening to the Sensible Project Manager Podcast, Episode 13. Today's topic, Risk Management with Carl Pritchard. Welcome to the Sensible Project Manager Podcast at SensiblePM.com, where you get an insider's edge on practical project management. Now, here is your host, Mark Phillippe. Welcome to the Sensible Project Manager Podcast. My name is Mark Phillippe, and I am the Sensible Project Manager. Last week, I had a special guest on the Sensible Project Manager Hangout to talk about risk management, which I believe is overlooked by project managers in many projects. Carl Pritchard is widely known thought leader on the topic of risk management. In fact, he led the team to author the risk management chapter of the fourth edition of the PMBOK. Now, before you push that stop button, because you think that risk management is a dry subject, listen on, because I think you'll find that Carl is a fun guy and takes an exciting approach to risk management. So let's go to the recording of Carl and I talking about risk management. And now, today's feature. Let's get to the topic of today's Hangout. First, we'll, we'll just introduce you to, to Carl. Carl, welcome, and thank you so much for uh, joining me on the Hangout. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for the invite. It's an awfully nice thing for you to do, so glad to be here. Well, great. Why don't we start with just uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. What do you do these days? Uh, you know, Just give us a little bit of a hint into the life of Carl. Well, I am, and you see I've got my little title down there, I'm the risk guy or the fun guy of project management. And I am the human being who's actually trying to convince everybody else that risk management is fun. And not that is a rather high hill to climb. Uh, most folks look at look at risk management as kind of like, oh, well, that which does not kill me makes me stronger, you know, slog my way through it and that kind of thing. And I'm the guy who takes a much different perspective in that I think this is our opportunity to really be clairvoyant and to look into a crystal ball and to look like the Einsteins that we are. And that's that to me is the real tragedy in a lot of cases. We we have these situations where we're the big dogs, we're running projects and and frankly, people don't see us as managers, specifically risk managers. They just look at us as kind of people who are pushing the ball along rather than actually getting something significant done or avoiding significant crises. Well, I agree. I, you know, I've, I've ran plenty of projects, and every time I, I run a project, I know that that is such an important thing to do. But there, are, frankly, there are times that I'm in that category of I'm slogging along. Okay, I need to do this, and I have experienced times when making sure that I have my risk plan in place that it has saved my life on a project, and so I know the value of it. But it's just one of those things that you know, you, there's there's so many things to do on a project, you know, and and it's not the 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 sexiest and glorious thing to do, but it's something that's so critical. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm great. I'm glad that you have that, and I'm glad that you have fun doing risk management. Yeah, and you know, the the other side, as far as what I what I physically do during the course of any given week, I spend most of my time preaching the gospel. Any any more, that's um, I go out and I preach the risk gospel, and I do it at PMI chapter meetings, at conferences. I I do a lot of training these days, both on just the general skills in project management, but also in risk management and risk management professional exam prep, that kind of stuff. I am, you know, there, there are a lot of people in that space. 
But uh, that that's essentially what I do to fill my my long and waiting hours. <laughs> Excellent. And you have a company around based around this uh, the risk management and the other other training project management activities you have. Yeah. It's Pritchard Management Associates, and we do uh, project management training, as well as, um, you know, it was interesting, we were having the conversation before we got started about the fact you and I are both on Windows 8.1. We are captains of technology, and uh, not too many people are aware of this. There's a whole Windows 8 app store, and I actually have a couple of apps that I have up in the Windows 8 store for PMP and for RMP, and things like that. It's, you know, any enterprise that actually I feel gets the gospel out in a new and creative way. Well, great. I'll have to check out that app. Yeah. Thank you for sharing a little bit about yourself. I want to, before we actually get into the risk management part of it, give us a picture of how you started into project management. How did you get there? And then kind of tie that into how did you get so interested in, in risk management? What led you to the point where you're the risk management guy? Well, you know, it, it's 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 all a very serpentine and bizarre path. It's it's one of those things. As I, we were talking before we went on, I um, I used to be the news director at WASH Radio in Washington D.C. And when I was running the news department at Wash, I quickly came to the realization that radio pay sucks. So, uh, <laughs> and, and and I needed to pick up some extra cash. So I was doing moonlighting. And I, I, I happened to write a white paper for an executive of a major corporation. In case you're wondering, major executives don't write their own white papers. They don't. No, they, they hire ghostwriters, yeah. And I was a corporate ghost. And I ghost wrote this paper on issues and concerns in project management in this particular company. And I, I wrote it and picked up my check, and life was good. And then I got a call a few weeks later saying, hey, Carl, we need you to come in and do some consulting for us. And I said, I, I'm sorry, you need some another white paper. The guy goes, no, 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 we need some project management support. And I said, you don't seem to understand. I'm a writer. I just regurgitated everything your folks told me. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. You understand our problems a lot better than we do. And I argued with him for a while, and then I stopped myself. and I, What does this pay? <laughs> and uh, losing my way into project management. And it was beautiful because the company I was consulting with actually put me through all the training, got me through all that, and after about two years of working both jobs, I uh, I transitioned into project management full-time. And then while I was in project management, while I was working for this particular consulting firm, our risk guy quit. And my boss called me into his office, and he said, hey, you heard, you heard that Jim quit. And I said, yeah, that's tragic. Great guy. Real, really, hey, who's the new risk guy? And he looked at me, and he goes, uh, that would be you. <laughs> and, and, and I said, I said, wait, wait, I'm sorry. I don't know squat about risk. And he said, well, you got six weeks to get up to speed. You're a quick learn. And <laughs> interestingly, though, the, the, the interesting part about that is, is that was 20, 22 years ago when we had that conversation. And since that time, I've, I've, I've written one book in four editions. I've got my uh, my other new book that just came out. It's the Risk Management Memory Jogger. Ooh, ah, love wow. these little things. Yeah, how cool is that? And I've got five other books out. And I, you know, it, I've gone from being somebody who just kind of got kicked into risk to somebody who believes. So much so that when the we were working on Pinbach Fourth Edition, I was the lead chapter author for the risk management chapter of Pinbach Four. I knew that. I heard about that. Yes. Yeah, it's. It's very cool to be me. It is. And, you know, so, 
But that's how I got into the whole risk thing. And the reason I've stayed in it is because I honestly believe so many people miss the joy and the passion that can really be associated with it. Most people look at it as being drudgery. And that's that's just plain tragic. It really is. Well, that that's a wonderful story. I love hearing about how people get into project management. And I talk to a lot of people, and that's one of my first questions because I want to find out how, how that happens. And so, frankly, many or most project managers are really what they call what the accidental project managers. And I, I don't know if I would fit you in that category. I think that you were a project management by appointment. And, and, and the same thing with risk management. You, you, you were appointed to those, those tasks. And that, that's, that's wonderful. That's a great way to get there. It's a great story. And it's whatever pays the bills. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, wonderful. Um, that, I, I am so glad you shared that with us because that, that was fun. So, okay. So let's, let's turn a little bit more detail about into risk management. For those of my listeners that are rather new to project management, Take us through the basics of risk management so that uh, they can have an understanding about what the basics are and then how we apply those in projects that we run. Well, there are, there are two big elements in risk management. One is the whole risk governance piece, and that's actually knowing what you want to do and where you want to go. You know, it's kind of tragic that, that a lot of people think they're, they can just go in and start identifying and managing individual risks without having really any kind of vision as to where they want risk management to go. And that's the, this is the whole governance piece. Part of it is is actually knowing what you're afraid of. And, and it's funny because most organizations live in the land of free-floating anxiety. They genuinely do. They, they, they have this nasty habit of just going, oh, this project's going to be a catastrophe. And you ask them, well, why? Why is it going to be a catastrophe? What are you afraid of? Oh, oh we're going to lose our shirts on this. Oh, so you're, are you afraid of losing money? Well, no, 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 I'm afraid we're going to just keep pouring bad money after good. And, oh, no, wait, wait. I'm, and as you talk to them, you find out they really don't know what they're afraid of. Then, because of that, they don't know where they should be drawing lines, where they should be saying, you know, I'm, I'm just not willing to go there. If you've ever watched a small child just terrified about something, and you ask them, what are you afraid of? No, they'll be like, it's scary. And it's like, well, what aspect? It's dark. Okay, well, it's dark. Now, let's, let's, let's talk. When you get down to what they're really genuinely afraid of, then you can say, well, how dark does it have to be before you're going to be scared? You know, and this is why nightlights were invented. You know, the whole idea here, yeah. And the whole idea here being is that if we can actually get some sense as to what we are organizationally afraid of, and, and I have no problem using that term, what we're organizationally afraid of, then we can start doing some more effective risk governance. Then we get some, now, and that's the one half of it. The other side of it is actually managing project risk. And that's getting down to figuring out what are the, what are the things that may happen to us that we hadn't planned on and how do we deal with them. Now, the things that might happen to us. Now you think about it. Just after you and I are done here today, you know, a lot of people, this being recorded on a Friday, they're going to be flying. They're going to be heading someplace. They're off to the weekend. They're off to do something. They're going to hop in their car. One of the most dangerous places that you spend time, your automobile. All now, right. are you worried? Well, most of us are, no, man, I'd love to go for a good drive, particularly when the roads are clean. You know, and that 
kind of goes to, well, what risks should we be worried about? Some people will love to bring up the one-off kind of risk. Well, my car could get hit by a falling plane. Wow. Really? Well, could that happen? Yes. Something you should worry about? No. If you are worried about it, you're just plain paranoid. Well, isn't, you know, isn't, isn't it true that most of the risks that we're worried about, that you talk about the worry, are those things that are so unknown to us? That's what we're really worried about, as those unknowns that might happen, uh, those things that we know, we usually don't get worried about. Yeah, and, and that's the huge mistake for most organizations, because most people are worried about all things biblical. You know, famine, pestilence, locusts, you know, that kind of stuff. And we're worried about the rocks falling out of the sky or trees crumbling down on top of us. Whereas the reality is, those little things that you just mentioned, the things we know about, the customer may change the requirements. Hey, I, I got a news flash for you. Their customers, they change requirements. <laughs> you know, it, 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 we can expect that. We genuinely can. We know that's coming. It you know, will happen. The reality is, yes, but the question is, to what degree and how big? And that then puts it into the category of being a risk. And then the, the real risk management question is, should we deal with that? The reality is, those unknown unknowns you're talking about, those, those are the one-offs, and most of the time forgiveness is extraordinarily high associated with those. You want something to really worry about, it's the customer coming in and doing scope creep. It's the individual on your team who comes in and goes, hey, I, I've got some serious daycare issues. And it's like, really? Today, you know, uh, you know, of all days, people who do that, those most projects don't die in this giant blazing glory. They die the death of a thousand paper cuts. Right. And, you know, we need to be the ones who are actually trying to prevent those paper cuts rather than spending all of our time going, pestilence, meteors, you know, that kind of thing, because those are not the things that are generally going to bury us. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, so there's two parts. It's the governance, and it's actually how you manage, how those risks themselves and, and working through those. Let's mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit more in de- depth on the governance part. What do sure. we do to set up that governance for our organizations? Well, and or um, what if I'm in the situation where I I'm in an environment where I the company does not have that kind of a governance governance? What can I do at the project level? Well, now first, if your company has none of this. Oh, happy day. And the reason you just became the luckiest person on the planet is because you now have a chance to actually instill in them to actually give the organization something it didn't have before, which can put you in the category of hero or guru. Either one is a fine place to be. Now, and and the way you do that, the way you actually accomplish that is, is you start with the simple stuff. For one, most organizations don't have risk language. They don't have a risk language. If you say to somebody, oh, hey, there's a risk that Bob might might not be here this afternoon. Well, wait a minute. Is Bob going to be here this afternoon or not? Well, no, he's not going to be here. Then it's not a risk. It's an issue. We need to be the ones who are defending the terminology. And this goes all the way back to Noah Webster. Noah Webster. You know, you've heard of Noah Webster, right? Uh, I have to plead my ignorance right there. Oh, okay. Noah Webster wrote the American English Dictionary. 
Webster's. That guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that guy. And the thing is, most people don't know why he wrote it. He wrote the American English Dictionary because he despised the British. I want you to imagine hating a culture so much that you would write a dictionary. That was Noah Webster. <laughs> and that's, that's who we should be. Because he created a distinct and unique American culture by writing one book. Now, if we're the ones who are writing the definition of terms, it's really cool because then when somebody comes up to you and says, and you say, um, I'm sorry, that's not how that term is used. You should be saying this, this, and that. And they get to go, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me just go to the, the, the reference here. Hold on. Oh, what do you know? I'm right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot easier when you're the one who wrote the book. You know, it makes life just, just that much simpler. So that's one of the first things is coming up with the definitions for your organization and then becoming the, the person, the apostle, if you will, who goes out and just spreads that message over and over and over again and gets that out there. The other side of this then, too, is creating a risk brand, being consistent in what you freak out about and what you don't. Now, let me ask you a question, Mark, since you're, you're my only candidate here, but <laughs> and and you do realize this is being recorded, so you're putting yourself on the line. Um, this is a test. It is. Would you um, would you ever go in excess of a posted 65 mile an hour speed limit? Well, you know, I, hypothetically, hypothetically, I you know I might do that from time to time. Okay. Hypothetically, would you be willing to go 70 in a 65? Hypothetically. I think I can do that, and I could still go under the radar. Okay. Um, 75 in a 65, would you be willing to do that? Now, this might depend on where I'm at, because hmm. I know that I, I live in Washington State. If yep. I go 75 and I get hmm. caught by the police, I will be paid, paying a ticket. However, if I'm driving through Montana... I know mm -hmm. for a fact I can do much better than that, and they won't even blink an eye because there's, what am I going to do? Run into a, a an antelope. So, yeah, so it depends on where I'm at. Okay. Now, put you in Montana then. Would you be willing to go 110 in a 65? Probably not, especially if you saw the car that I drive. That, yeah, and there. Sooner or later, you hit a point where you're going, oh, no, 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 too rich for my blood. That's right. You know, the creepy thing is in organizations, we do this all the time. You know, oh, we're over by $100,000. Well, gee, that's a lot of money, but it's only $100,000. I say go. Well, let's just keep going. Uh, gee, we're over by, um, another $75,000. Do you want to keep going? Oh, another seventy-five. Well, gee, we're so close, and it's just, you can almost taste it. Uh, no, no, well, okay, okay, yeah, go ahead. Oh, we're over by another $50,000, and it's the that, that small incremental death that is happening to us. We want to be effective. We tell people, if you cross this line, we're done here. Yeah. Done. And as a matter of fact, um, one of the companies that I used to work with, one of the telecoms, which is no longer with us, God rest their soul, but uh, they're, they're no longer with us. And it, what's interesting about them, though, they had the coolest project chartering documents of any company I ever saw. They were pretty? Because at the, uh, no, just down at the bottom, they had one box. It was genius. Sheer genius. 
And it said, you know, it had, here's your authorization, here's the project, here's its objectives, here's all the other data. And then down at the bottom it said, kill criteria. Under the following conditions, this project will be sent to management for review for termination. Now think about that. It's day one of the project. You've just got the team energized to go get them. And yet, if it goes this far, we're all dead. <laughs> Sweet. That's the perfect answer. Why? Because you start out knowing exactly where the lines are. Everybody has a clear vision. And if they said, if it goes over a million dollars, it's over. And you're only a third of the way through and you've spent five hundred and fifty or six hundred thousand dollars, what's going through your head right now? Yeah. We're never gonna make this. We're not gonna make the million. We made it's time to prepare management for bad news. Right. Good for us. At least we're telling them sooner rather than later. We're planning, we know where we're going, and people believe the one person who can ruin this for you in a heartbeat is the loose cannon. Or the cowboy. Every organization has them. And they're like, hey, I can pull this off. I'll be able to save this. I'll be able to put lipstick back on this pig. And we're like, no, don't do that. We should be the ones who are stopping that earlier rather than later, alerting people when it's time to be alerted, and being honest about, no, you should not be freaked out yet. Or on the other side of that, yes, now it's time for full-blown panic. Well, I mean, that to me, that totally makes sense because if you lay out those rules ahead of time, when you're, when everybody's thinking clearly and, and understand, you know, what those rules of those games are, it's a completely different story than if you're in the midst of the game, emotions are high, and all of a sudden you have to be making these decisions. It's probably too late and you might not be making the smartest decisions at that point. Yeah, and that's exactly the point. I mean, it, and you nailed it. It's one of those things where if you do this at the beginning, it's a belief system. If you do this along the way, it's reactionary. We are never supposed to be just reactionaries as risk managers. Right, right. That I completely get that. That makes sense to me yeah. all the way. Cool. Okay, so that's so. Any any more about the um, the structure of the governance of or the, that we would set up? Well, the, the other side of it, too, is, is basically making sure that you're comfortable with your own risk brand. Are you going to be the, the police? Are you going to be out there as an enforcer? Are you going to be out there as kind of a soft sell? But whatever we do, we need to be so consistent about it that it becomes our risk brand. So that when other people behave what we deem to be inappropriately when it comes to risk, they become our agents. They actually serve as the ones who are going, uh, just so you know, Carl's going to explode if he sees that. And you've worked for people like that where, where you, you know, they're like, oh, geez, if Janet ever sees this, she's just going to scream bloody murder. You know, whoever said that and whoever got them to that reaction, that Janet in that little scenario, God bless her, she is the perfect risk manager because she's got other people being her voice. Yeah, that makes sense. Very good. Okay, so let's talk about, so that's, that's the governance. Uh, you, you really want to be able to understand how you're going to manage risk as you go along, set those, those same terminology, the, the, define those terminologies for the organization and set that brand so that you know the methods in which you're going to use and all that kind of stuff. That's the governance end of things. 
What about the other side? Let's talk a little bit more detail about the risks themselves. How, When you're in the game and you're starting a project, what are those things that you do when you're starting a project? Assuming that all of that that methodology, those methodologies are set up from the organization, you've done that, that kind of work, what do you do when you get started in your project? Well, we do a microcosm of that for the project, and that's called the risk management plan. We actually do that on a microcosmic level where we just say, Here's the project. Now here's our terms for this project. Here's the language for this project. Because while it's nice to set up a lot of the terminology organization-wide, some of it is project-specific. And that, for example, how high high is. Somebody says, oh, that's a high risk. Really? How high is high? Now, Mark, here's my question to you and to to the folks who are listening. $5,000. On the biggest project you ever worked on, would that have been a big deal? No, that's a drop in the drop, okay. drop of the bucket. Okay, fifty thousand. Still, probably pretty small because I have done multi multi million dollar projects. Great. Okay, five hundred thousand dollars. That becomes serious. Okay, now and, on and a big project, right? And, and notice what's happening. We're transitioning from you know basically, you know, how hot does the stove have to be before we're actually willing to take action on it. And, and, and the amazing thing is that, you know, a lot of projects don't have that governance piece building up front, which is the risk management plan. But once you've got that laid out, and I think you're saying that assuming we do, we have our language, we have our tolerances, we have all that stuff laid out, now we need to actually get in and identify risk. And uh, amazingly, the, the most common tool for risk identification is brainstorming. And just an FYI, classic brainstorming is pathetic. <laughs> when it comes to identifying risk, it's the wrong tool in my book. Now, it's in the PIM box, so I shouldn't say these things. But <laughs> I, I notice so you're you know, saying you're, PM, you're wearing your PMI shirt, too. So. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm wearing my this is PMI Baltimore there. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing my local colors here. <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah, as far as, uh, you know, actually identifying risk, the reason brainstorming doesn't work well is because, for one, we've all been in the brainstorm where one individual it's kind of like steering the whole show. You'll be there. Any other thoughts? Any thoughts at all? Oh, Nancy, that's a good one. Thank you. Okay, Nancy, another good one. Okay, thank you. Anybody? And Nancy, okay, thank you. That's that's a very good answer. Anybody else at all? Anyone? And everybody Anyone? else oh, in the room is quiet. Nancy, yeah. <laughs> and at the back of the room sits Todd, who thinks, well, if I say nothing, this all ends sooner. <laughs> and he is—he's just frankly part of the the problem, children that we're dealing with here. What we need to do is find ways to extract information, not only from Nancy, but from the whole body of stakeholders. And that means, generally speaking, writing. There's another reason you don't want people to express verbally what their risks are. And, and that's because people get paranoid about jinxing it. They're worried about jinxing something. Now, let's see here. I'm just looking over at my, uh, my wall calendar. Not next week. Okay, the week after next. Oh, no, next week, the end of the week. I'm, I'm on a flight to Long Island. Now, what could go wrong on that flight? You know, you could get a bad drink, or you could have a very bad, bumpy ride. Now, Mark, we didn't talk about this in advance, did we? No, not at all. Okay. No, I, I, I want you all to notice what Mark just did, though. He's delicately dancing around something, and that is, the plane could crash and I could die. <laughs> now, he didn't want to see that. He didn't want to say that, oh, Carl, that's awful, that's morbid. I well, that would be, or my guess, and I would, I would feel real bad. And it's like, what a pile. 
Mark, you, you got to understand something here. Risk management, and this is the problem that we actually face. A lot of people don't want to invoke a particular risk because they're afraid if I say it, it might happen. Right. And yeah, nothing could be further from the truth. It, you, I promise, will not cause my plane to crash if you say that. But people get paranoid about sharing that stuff. And the other reason is in a lot of organizations, if you're the one who said it, you're the one who owns it. <laughs> I've been there too. I know exactly it, what you're talking about there. It's painfully true. So ideally what we want to do is give people a chance to write risks down. You can do this using a variety of, of brainstorming techniques, but they're written brainstorming techniques. There's the Crawford slip where you use post-it notes and just hand them out to people and one post at a minute, everybody generates one answer to the question, what are the risks? Or you can do it using the nominal group technique where you just give people a sheet of paper and say you're going to have five minutes to write down as many ideas as you can think of. But now, for those of you who've been doing risk for a while and going, nothing new here, just, just an FYI, here's your little nugget that you can take back and say, i got something really insanely valuable. And that is, when you're telling people to write these risks down, give them a format. Because otherwise, people will toss out one-word answers. Weather! Weather is not a risk. What's the bad thing that may happen and the impact it may cause? You need both sides. You need a full sentence. I was an English major in college. It's the only time I ever get to use my English major. A full sentence is a powerful tool. If we use full sentences to express what the risk is, what's the bad thing that might happen, the event, and the effect of that, the cause and the effect, then, ta-da, we have a full risk statement something we can actively manage. If I just say to you, oh, what's a big risk? Schedule. Well, what on the schedule? Well, I'm worried that Pat might get sick. And if, if Pat gets sick, that could blow the schedule by two weeks and we'd end up eating liquidated damages. Thank you. Now I have something to manage. I can actually do something. I can put Pat in a plastic bubble. I can uh, rewrite the contract to get rid of the liquidated damages. I can do a host of different things now because I know what the real thing is. And it's no longer free-floating anxiety, which is what we're trying to avoid all over the place. Well, that's a, those are those are great tips. Um, I've used the post-it notes very very in the past very effectively, uh, but I like the idea of making sure that you give them that that pattern, which we should be able to include both the cause and the effect. That's that's a great tip. Yeah, and you know the the sad thing is is. It, People think they've conquered risk when they had one little sit-down and run through a list. And it's like, okay, well, we're done. Whew, we did the risk thing. They've only begun. They haven't qualified which ones they should worry about, which is the next step in the process. And for that, we go back to the, are you worried about 50000 Are you worried about 500000 They need to know how high high is. Mm -hmm. You actually have to resolve those. So they need to qualify them in some way. And for the ones that are big bucks, they probably need to quantify them as well. They need to figure out how much is this risk worth? Now, uh, and this is not a question for you, Mark, as much as it is for the folks who are listening, and, and that is for your current project, would they go back to the old approach, whatever it is that you're replacing or updating or redoing? Because almost every project is born out of a need to do something new. Would they go back to the old way of doing business if it was a million dollars over, 
$500 million over? A billion dollars over? A trillion dollars over? So changing, now, changing the th way you're thinking about that as to... Um, the, the, when you asked me the question before from a different point of view, what you're, you were asking, trying to figure out what my limit in which, for the driving example, the limit in which my pain begins to become cause of the problem. You're twisting that now and asking it a different, differently, asking it such that would I continue to do what I was doing before based on a, some dollar amount of that pain level, correct? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, you know, remarkably, People don't know the answer to that, and and I and I raise this in class after class after class, and it, the, it staggers the imagination how few people know when it's no longer good business to go ahead and do this, and you know, you know that that's part of the numbers thing with risk management. Some people love to play all the numbers games with risk management, and I, I find it kind of compelling that they'll they'll say, well, you know, the project's supposed to have a 17% ROI. And then I ask what sounds like a really obvious question and get stunned looks. I'll say, just out of curiosity, who uh, who calculates the ROI in your project in process? Hmm. And they'll go, oh, well, uh, we don't actually do it while the project's in process. We're just kind of eyeballing it. Okay, well, well whose eyeballs? Well, we're just, uh, just, just working it out, you know. And when the project's done, we'll do a reassessment to figure out, great. Okay, so it's return on investment. What constitutes an investment? And what constitutes a return? And even then, people can't answer those very fundamental questions. And without that, you don't know how much risk you're taking. Good point. Now, people want to play math games until the cows come home, but they're not willing to have an intelligent conversation with their accountants or their finance department. I, I'm married to mine. My lovely wife, Nancy, a goddess to be worshipped, is a CPA. We're, we're a fun couple. And, yeah, um, yeah, I can I can see the conversations uh, talking about numbers and risk management, project management. Yeah. It must be just a thrill around the table. Yeah, you want to party with these people. <laughs> and the the interesting thing though is that when you know Nan marvels at the fact that people are afraid to go in and have a conversation with accounting or finance to ask the basic question, you know, how'd you come up with these numbers, and how are you going to be calculating them on an ongoing basis? Without that information. A lot of this stuff becomes moot because we talk about being a million dollars over, but you know most people don't even know when they're a nickel over, let alone a million dollars. So it you know it becomes a, a real big deal. Agreed. So I wanted to, something you said earlier. I wanted to go back to that a little bit. I know sure. that when I'm thinking about, I'm at the beginning of a project, and I am working through my my project plan, putting together my risk management plan. And, uh, troubleshooting, you know, identifying what those risks are. Um, I have, I'm being completely transparent at times just to get through that drudgery of getting through the risk management. Instead of getting my stakeholders together, I hope my boss is not listening. Um, I've, I've written up my own risk, risks that I've identified. Tell me how bad of a problem is that? Do you really want to know one? <laughs> well, well, no, yeah. I, I think I know the answer, but I just wanted to make yeah. sure we're bringing these kinds of points up because I think project managers do this a lot. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's not just a problem. It's a flipping tragedy. And, and the reason it is is because there are 
so many other ideas about what you should worry about. I um, One of the examples I'll, I'll often use in class is digging the foundation for a building. And I'll ask what are the risks, and people immediately go to the, you know, hit rock, hit a power line, hit a gas line, hit a mastodon, you know, just <laughs> they, they, they've got all this vision of all these different things you could dig up. And yet, when I, um, I had a guy putting in an addition on our house, and when he was in the backyard with the backhoe, I grabbed him at lunchtime and I said, hey, I just wanted to find out. I teach this class and I ask this question a lot. What's the biggest risk you face in excavating a foundation? And he got really, really tense. And he said, you know what it is? You know those little stakes with the string in between them? And I said, yeah. And he goes, and the paint that's underneath those? And I said, yeah. And he goes, do you know that dogs pull those out? Kids pull those out? Harry homeowner pulls those out? And to boot, then Harry Homeowner mows the lawn under where the string was, and I wind up digging the wrong hole. I was like, I was like wow, that actually happened a lot? Because it happens about every third project. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Now, I had no idea. I had spent years listening to people, you know, hit uranium. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. You know, hit Native American burial ground. Thank you. And... You know, people worry about digging into everything without worrying about just digging the wrong hole. And the reason he becomes the most important stakeholder of all, he's the guy who actually does this. He actually knows what he's doing. And I asked him, I said, have you ever hit anything? He said, no, that's why you call misutility before you dig. You know, and, and I was like, oh, okay, that's what we call it here. I'm sure every state has their own program for, you know, call before you dig. Right. But you know, he calls that magic number and finds out, okay, there's nothing going to kill me under here. There's no old lines. But the interesting thing about this is is he actually brought something to the table I had never thought of and yet is a common risk event. So when we when we try to do our own our risk, um, identifying our risks in our little own little bubble, because of our perspective uh, from our point of view, there is no way we're going to be able to identify all the risks. Oh, not only that, you, well, frankly, first, don't, don't live under the misconception you can ever identify all the risks. That will never happen. There's always one new one. Up until now, nobody in the room was thinking about the fact that, you know, that you or I could be vaporized by a meteorite. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example there. I work for yeah. a utility, and um, there was, nobody could have even guessed that this would have happened, but there was a windstorm. And uh, a trampoline from a neighbor came and blew and landed in um, one of the transformers and shorted out and had a blackout. Who would have guessed that that would have happened? Yeah. And and, and, and in that particular one, it did a blackout and took out our data center. <laughs> oh. But now, you know, the other side of that is I'm laying odds that since that event happened, you now have some kind of recovery plan or backup to the backup plan, fallback plan. Absolutely. Yeah, and this is the key. The first time it happened, everybody looked and said, what the, I can't, oh, man. And they had that moment. And yet now, because it's a known risk, something we have seen happen, you darn well better have a plan for it. And the expectations are now there. So... Yeah, that does change it into a different category altogether. 
Boom. But you know, bottom line is you need all these other players because each and every one of you has those things that you have run into in your careers. I mean, I everybody everybody has that, you know, the evil customer or the uh, the particular episode with somebody who was anal retentive about the tale or somebody trying to take advantage of you in a contract. All those things are commonplace. And yet, what's commonplace for me, me is not commonplace for you. And you need to be the one who brings yours to bear. I need to be the one who brings mine to bear. And all of the team members, no matter how much we see them as lesser players, they need an opportunity to chime in with, you know what I'm really sweating about? Because sometimes that's the one thing that ultimately will bury you. Good. Okay, so I kind of sidelined us a little, uh, sidetracked us a little bit. So we, we, we got to the point where we've, we've identified risks. And again, to your point, it's not all of them, but we've identified risks. And we've done that as a group. We've gotten all the stakeholders together that, and identified those risks. The next step you had, you were pointing out was you then identify the impacts. Is that, so state that again, and then I want well, to move on to what? Qualify them. Qualify them, okay. Yeah. Now, and then once, once you do that qualification, what is the next step? What do, you, what do you do after that? Well, if you're not going to play the numbers game, some people do, some people don't, out of the qualified risks, what you do is you take the ones that are colloquially known as high highs, high probability, high impact, and you deal with them first. Then you deal with the ones that are medium highs, medium probability, high impact, and you deal with those next. Now, most organizations don't make it much past the high highs and the medium highs. That's really, you know, that's about as long as the list can get, and they have to, oh, that's all we can handle. And that's fine. And the rest of them get stored away. And, well, the, anything that's high impact management gets alerted to, but we don't do anything about it. But the rest of these we actually take action on. And we actually decide what strategies are we going to deploy? What are we going to do to actually make sure that we can live with what happens? Now, the most common risk strategy is live with it. Accept it. That's the single most common strategy. You get in your car. Do you know you have a much higher probability of dying in your car? Or the other place that is high death in your home, your bathtub. Do you know the bathtub is the second most dangerous place you spend time? Now, uh, Carl, I'm safe. I have a shower. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, bathtub or shower. But that's where you're really at risk. You're genuinely at risk in your car and in your bathtub. And yet most of us don't go into the bathtub wearing the water wings and the you know the safety goggles, you know we're we're not we're not doing that Be, because we've accepted that risk. That's right. And over time, we get more and more inured to the risks that we've accepted, and we start to forget about them. Driving, if you've ever gotten a ticket, you've had that magic moment after you got the ticket, where for the next two months you were a saint <laughs> behind the wheel. It's like. I am new. You can pass me if you like, but I am doing the speed limit. And then about two months later, it's, and I am doing two miles an hour over the speed limit. And about three months later, it's, I'm doing five miles over the speed limit. And it's generally starting to get to the point where we start to believe we're once again invulnerable to the risk. And that's, when it comes to strategies, we've got to be very careful about our own sense of invulnerability. One of the reasons a lot of people argue that NASA had the Challenger disaster and the Columbia disaster was their own sense of infallibility. They couldn't screw up. And yet, the best engineers that NASA has working for them, and there are plenty, 
The best engineers they've got working for them are the ones who are constantly freaking out. The ones who are not sucking a breath without worrying about, you know, this could cause total system failure. And those are the people I want on my team. I want the people who are paranoid about the day-to-day. I want the people who are genuinely recognizing that it's the little stuff that ultimately eats away at your project. And coming up with the strategies. So if you're not accepting it, then it starts getting expensive because minimizing probability, minimizing impact, those are mitigation strategies, those tend to get more expensive. Transfers insanely expensive. And what do you mean by transfer? Giving the risk to somebody else. If I hire some outsider or if I buy insurance, you can just hear the cash register ringing in the back of your head. It's, it's going to get steep. It really is. And it's going to be prohibitive over time. Okay. So, so we, we have to kind of wait. How bad is this? Can we afford the expensive date that's on the other side of that door? You know, can, can we really afford to bring in that consultant or bring in that insurance company or whatever it might be? Okay, so let me stop you for a second. Just want sure. to make sure that we got the, the, the terminology correct. So uh, you could avoid the the risk. Okay, which is dumping it all together. Forget it. Avoidances, we're just, just forgetting it. Uh, you know, bag the project. We're not going there. Or bag this approach to the project. We're not going there. It's too risky. Okay. You can accept the risk. Suck it up. Right. Uh, you can transfer the risk to somebody else or some some other team or whatever that is. Right, which was classically known as deflection. Okay, and then mitigation. Describe mitigation a little bit more because that's what well, I would. That's what we do a lot as well too. Oh yeah, and because well, frankly, it's attractive. It's alluring. You know, you 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 decide you realize there's a risk that that particular tree is so big and has so many branches, and each one of those branches is a tree unto itself, that in the next ice storm, they could come down and kill somebody. Now, how could I minimize the probability that I'm going to have a fatal branch fall? Let's see. I could go ahead and call in a professional arborist and have them trim the tree before the ice storm. Classic example of this, Florida Power and Light, FPL. They actually did an amazing job of winning quality award after quality award, including the Malcolm Ballridge. And the reason they won was because they had fewest outages. One of the reasons they had the fewest outages, they sent around arborists to stop the trees from falling. Oh, pretty clever. That was a minimizing the probability that it was going to happen strategy. Minimizing the impact there is, I, I live in the mountains of western Maryland, and it's kind of interesting. There's a place out here in the mountains where they've cut, it's actually referred to as the Sidling Hill Cut. And there's a huge, deep chasm that's just been literally shaved out of a mountain. It's like somebody just took a razor and went <laughs> about halfway through the mountain just and left these two walls of rock on either side. Hmm. Now, the big risk, of course, is that some of those rocks may become dislodged and fall into the highway, killing somebody. Now, what they've done to minimize the impact of falling rock is they have giant wire mesh nets down at the bottom. Well, the rocks still fall. Yeah, of course they will. Yeah, the rocks are still going to fall. But if they fall, what happens if they fall? Well, they fall into the nets instead of falling onto cars. So it minimizes the impact of them falling. So the event still comes to pass, but it's kind of like, oh, well, 
then if it hits us, it doesn't hit us quite so badly. And that's minimizing the impact. And both have a place because generally one is more expensive or more realistic than the other. Great. Okay, so um, we identify we identify the risks. We put some value to that of what that what that means to the to the organization or to our project. We address it by those things we've talked about. Um, is there any? Is it the rest of it is just monitoring and watching those risks occur and or uh, putting together our plan or following through with our plan? Is that correct, or is there other pieces? Well, no, no, you were, that was very pinbuck of you, Mark. That was very nice. <laughs> uh, that was that was perfect. Um, actually, the the monitoring and control piece, though, and and people generally write this off, is is also the big part of data capture. Did the strategies work? Do they make sense? And, and, and there's there's the simple question. Do seatbelts save lives? Do they? Yeah. You measure okay. them, right? Yeah. Sure. Seatbelts save lives. Wonderful. Do airbags save lives? Once again, it's yes, it is, but they can cause problems too, right? Well, now, there you go. And airbags, we learned throughout the course of the, of the turn of the century here, we, we learned that airbags are a godsend in terms of near-fatal accidents. The kicker is, though, for, for small people, and the classic example of this is my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law happens to be four foot ten, and I went with her when she went to buy her Honda, and we said, we need you to turn off the airbags. And the guy said, oh, ma'am, we don't do that. We don't like to turn off the airbags. That's, that's a safety device. She looked at him and said, I really need you to turn off the airbags. And... <laughs> You know, that's that's a big part of this is we need to recognize when the strategies work and when they don't. And over time, people get the idea and they also then modify the strategies. Now, Mark, i got to ask you, you said you're driving a, a piece of junk. Um, how old is this 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 car of yours? Oh, it's... it's, it's what model year? You'll love this. This is a Honda CRV. It's a 2002. However, I live in the country and uh, we do a lot of driving. The car has 320,000 miles on it. Wow. Now, take that. Your Honda CRV has an airbag that would be lethal to my mother-in-law. Absolutely. Now, if you buy a brand new one, just venture with me to Fantasy Island, Mark. Okay. Uh, but if you bought a brand new one and you got that thing, do you know what? If you, The airbags in that are not the same as your O2 airbags. The airbag manufacturers don't make them the same way anymore. And most people are completely unaware of this. If you have a 2011 or later model year, every time you get in your car, your seats, your front seats, weigh you. That's right. They're checking your weight. They're finding out just how beefy you are. And that's kind of a, kind of a nightmarish moment. You're plopping down in the seat and the little meter inside is measuring your weight and then it's adjusting pressure of the airbag accordingly. Before you ever pull out of the driveway, that's all done. And that's one of those things where monitoring and control becomes very important because the airbag manufacturers knew sooner or later somebody was going to be sitting behind an airbag, boom, the thing was going to go off, and the, the airbag itself was going to kill them. And they knew they had to come up with a strategy that would work. The only way they found that out was by monitoring and control, by overtime learning. Gee, this is hurting people of this height, this weight, this age. And they came to the realization weight was something they could do something about. 
And so they started weighing people as they get in their cars and figuring out just how much pressure would it take to stop them from cramming themselves through the windshield in a near-fatal accident. Interesting. And, yeah, so this is why the monitoring control piece actually goes to making risk come alive and do something meaningful for the long term. We do so many strategies that are like, well, be sure to stow your buggy whip before you put your carriage away. Really? Do we, are, are we still back there? <laughs> there are so many strategies that just need to be looked at and revisited and asked, does it work? Is there a way we can make this part of the, part of the norm? And how can we ultimately do that? And that gets down to making risk practical in the day to day. Well, that's interesting because what you're talking about is then, um, you know, my mind is thinking for a specific project. Well, as you make your way through the project, you're going to get through the other end, unless, of course, it gets canceled. Sure. Um, sure. And, but from those risks, there's lessons that come out of the other end that gets applied towards future projects or whatever that is, just in, exactly in the case that you've just mentioned with your airbags. They've, they've yeah. applied those risks uh, on multiple across multiple projects or, or at, at a product level. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and you know, the, the, the sad thing about it is a lot of people don't share the stuff they learn during a project because they are, well, this is my little bit of knowledge. I know that doesn't work or I know that does work. And we should be the ones who are out there screaming about everything we know. Knowledge is not power. Knowledge is power shared. You only get somewhere if you're willing to share information freely. Great. All right. Well, we are running close to the end of our time, but there is a, there's something I want to make sure we bring out. We're going to go a little bit long, so I hope you don't mind. Not too much longer, but I, we've talked about risk, and everybody, as you, you talked about, is you freak out about those things that happen. But there's also this thing called opportunities. Address that real quick, if you would. Sure. Um, I have to confess, when Pinbach, when I was working with the Pinbach 4 team and um, was in charge of the risk management chapter, the very first question I asked the people in charge, I said, hey, am I allowed to take risk out of the, or opportunity out of the risk section? And they said, no. Crap. Because uh, I've never been a big fan of that. Now, I do have to say that after working through Pinbox 4 and working with a couple of clients that I've had through the years, I've gotten a new respect for the whole opportunity side of threat. And that is, one, one big company that I worked with for a number of years had an interesting way of presenting their management risks. Any of you have ever been in on that session where you go, okay, here's our top ten list, there's this bad thing, this bad thing, this really bad thing, and this bad thing, and that bad thing, and then darkness, and then you die. <laughs> and... You finish those meetings and everybody just wants to go hang themselves. Um, the company I worked with that actually did this well had an amazing practice. And what they did was when, when you were doing the presentation of your top list of risks to management, you actually had to present them, here's the bad thing that may happen and the impact it may cause. And if it does come to pass, here's the good news. Now, I thought that was the coolest twist on opportunity I ever saw. Hmm. Because think about that. Now, I, you think about all the different possibilities, all the different risks. The client may change requirements, causing us delays and cost overruns. What's the good news? Well, 
we might get additional benefit from that. That's right. We might be able to get more work. We might be able to write change change orders where we can change, 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 ratchet up the price. There are a host of different things that might be good coming out of this. We might get a chance to change the things in the scope that we hate. You know, all those things are possibilities if we know that those opportunities are there. If we don't identify them as opportunities and the risk actually does come to pass, then tragically we'll never seize those opportunities. So I always thought that was kind of like the coolest single twist I ever saw on the whole opportunity side of risk management. Interesting. Okay, well, thank you so much. I don't want to take any more of your time up. Uh, Carl, thank you. You've been just absolutely wonderful to talk to. you uh, you are a fun guy too. So the right answer. Thank you. <laughs> I've learned a lot from this and, uh, I, I, I've got some renewed goals to be able to, to use my risk management methodologies in the right way and, and, and make improvements on that. Uh, Mark, can I toss out one other thing? Sure. If anybody does have any questions for me or has, wants, wants to contact me, you can either get a hold of me through Mark or my email address is just so simple. It's Carl at carlpritchard.com. Thanks. Perfect. I was going to ask if you had that. Do you have any other thing, any, a website that you want to point people to? Well, it's carlpritchard.com. What a shock. Oh, there yeah. go. And uh, it promotes all my all my various and sundry books and crap and everything else. So, any any events that you're going to be co- coming to uh, that you want to promote at all? Uh, end of March, I've got PMP Prep in Rockville. Um Outside of that, I've got a, a million and one chapter meetings. I uh, I do the chapter circuit pretty much all over the world, so I'll be getting around. Excellent. Well, if you ever come to the Pacific Northwest, let me know. I am the VP of programs in my chapter. We might just love to have you there. Cool. That'd be great. Well, Carl, thank you very much. And again, thank you for everybody that's listened to this. I hope you've gained good information about risk management and you Take that and see if you can apply that to your projects and your organizations to make risk risk management better and to become a little bit more fun about how you do project or risk management. Amen. Carl, have a great uh, day, and we'll talk to everybody next week. Well, that was fun. Carl took a subject that, frankly, is sometimes not the most thrilling aspect of project management to talk about and made it come alive for me. I hope you gained as much as I did from that discussion, and I know that I have a renewed desire to be more diligent in my approach to risk management, and I hope you do too. Now, I encourage you to check out his books. Uh, I have not read them yet, full disclosure, but if he writes anything like he talks, that should be a pretty good read. I'll go ahead and include links to those books in my show notes at sensiblepm.com slash 13. Also, go to the show notes and tell me your thoughts on risk management. Specifically, I'd love to be able to hear if you have a time in which your risk management plan saved you and your project. Share those. Love to be able to hear some of those uh, examples out on the comments. Now, I'd like to ask a favor. If you would go to iTunes, I'm working to see if I can get some uh, some reviews out there. Uh, give me a review of my podcast, and that will help me in making some progress and in, in uh, bringing my podcast or this podcast to more people. 
Now, just reminder, I've got a couple of series coming up that I uh, wanted to remind you about. Last last episode, I told you about a mentoring series that I'm going to be releasing. I, I did mention that I was going to release it last week at the end of the week. That didn't happen. There's, there's just more editing than I that I need to do that I didn't have time for. In this mentoring series, Terry Etchegwin and I are sitting down as she studies for her CAPM. And uh, just going to turning on the mic, letting you guys listen along. And those of you that already have passed your tests, uh, if that or your PMP, you don't need to listen to them. But this is just an extra series that I'm adding to the podcast. wanted to be able to provide those to those of you that are new to project management or are preparing for either a CAPM or a PMP. The other thing is we're going to have a new round or second round of the PM flash blog. And the topic this time around is going to be project management around the world. That's starting March 3rd to 2014. We're going to be able to read about project management in different parts of the world at, from the point of view of different bloggers throughout the world. That series starts on March 3rd, as I mentioned, and then every week for the next few weeks, we'll have a different release for each one of the different parts of the world. So look forward to that. You'll hear more about that both on my website and other other bloggers throughout the uh, PM community. Now, if you want to get a hold of me, you can contact me in two different ways. One of them is you can just send me an email at podcast at sensiblepm.com. Let me know what you think. Give me some suggestions for future topics. If uh, you have a mic set up or microphone set up to your computer, you can just go to my website, sensiblepm.com, and on the right-hand side, there is a button that says Send Voicemail. Just select that. It will allow you to just send me a voicemail from your computer. Just really easy. Now, until next week, remember, a sensible project manager always looks for a practical way to manage a project to success. You've been listening to the Sensible Project Manager, Mark Philippi, on the Sensible Project Manager podcast. To learn more about practical project management, visit us at sensiblepm.com.